EU Confidential will get started right after this message. This message is brought to you by SQM. We are a global company that is committed to human progress, supplying diverse products to industries such as health, nutrition, clean energy, and technology. Press freedom is not only a right for journalists, it is a right for all of us. Press freedom protects us. Let's protect press freedom. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission Vice President Vera Jourova marking World Press Freedom Day with a pledge that the EU will do more to protect freedom of the media. But how much can and should the EU do? And what is the state of media freedom in the EU right now? We'll explore those questions in a moment. We'll also get the lowdown on the European Commission's plans to ease coronavirus travel restrictions and open up the EU to visitors once again. And we'll talk about the EU's social summit in Porto, where the Portuguese government wants leaders to focus on social policy. But not everyone thinks that's a job for the EU. But first, let's talk media freedom. So we heard uh, European Commission Vice President Vera Jourova just a moment ago stressing the importance of media freedom. And that message, she also talked about how important reliable media and sources of information were uh, during the pandemic. So it's an issue that, that she and others are putting on the political agenda. So we thought it'd be good to look at it a bit more closely. And I'm um, joined by our regular chief correspondent in Berlin, Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hello. And by our Brussels politics reporter, whose beat includes rule of law and democracy, Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So, Lily, why don't you just start by giving us a, an outline of where media freedom is uh, seen to be under particular threat? We know there are, you know, NGOs, organisations that try and kind of quantify this and, and categorise countries in terms of, you know, the state of media freedom in those places where, particularly within the European Union, where are the countries that give cause for concern? So Reporters Without Borders recently put out its annual list. Some of the results may not surprise our listeners, some may. So the worst EU country uh, in terms of media freedom is Bulgaria, according to this particular study. They are in the 112th place globally. Following that, Hungary is in 92nd place, Malta in 81st place, Greece 70th and Poland in 64th place. So these are the EU countries where uh, media freedom, according to experts, is not doing so well. Mm. And what are the particular factors they're looking at there? You know, what uh, feeds into to those rankings? I think they look at a variety of factors, but one factor that I know has caused a lot of concerns in recent years is pressure from certain governments on independent media. So this is something that we have seen in countries like Hungary, Poland, Slovenia. And of course, there's also concern about violence. We've seen murders of journalists uh, in several European countries over the past years in Malta, Slovakia, and most recently in Greece. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, Matt, you wanted to chime in here because I think you have an example of less than exemplary media freedom, if you like, in a country that some people might be surprised to see in that category. Tell us a bit more. Yes, and the the country is a West European country, at least politically, a democracy uh, right in the center of Europe, and and it's Austria, which I think would surprise a lot of people. But over the past several years, under Sebastian Kurz, the government there has used its powers to influence media and to, I would say, undermine some media in various ways, some of them a bit more subtle than what Lily has just been talking about. But the main way that they have done this is to use the power of the purse. By that, I mean they they use the budget that the government has to take out ads in newspapers, say, to reward their friends in the media and to punish others. So over the next several years, they, they plan to spend uh, somewhere around 200 million euros on advertising, which is a lot of money in a, in a small country like Austria. And, and most of that money will go to the two main tabloids, which happen to be very supportive of the chancellor and his party. And uh, you know, almost almost nothing will go to some of the more critical outlets. You also have a lot of influence being exercised by the government over the uh, state broadcaster, the ORF, uh, in terms of its management. They're going to have a management uh, change coming up later this year, a, a new director. And beyond all of this, we've seen in recent weeks and some of the revelations that have come out in the various corruption scandals in Austria, the tactics behind the scenes that the chancellor and his allies have been using by uh, trying to intimidate uh, editors, by you know calling them up and pressuring them. Mm. So we are, of course, fair-minded independent journalists, so we should um, ask what, uh, does the Austrian government acknowledge or accept any of this, particularly when it comes to, you know, the financial power or advertising? Is there an explicit link there? Or is it, uh, in your view, more of a kind of unspoken quid pro quo that's taking place? Well, I would say it's an unspoken uh, quid pro quo, but you have to ask yourself, why would the largest newspaper in a country that is profitable, is very profitable, it's the most read newspaper in the world per capita, uh, why would it need sort of this extra help? Because, you know, on top of the the advertising that they're getting from the government, they're getting subsidies from the state. So I, I, I think, you know, these are standards that have evolved there that are really not kosher by any normal measure. Now, the government, the Kurz government would say, well, uh, you know, our predecessors, they're the ones who introduced this. They're the ones who started doing this, the Social Democrats. But the budget for the advertisements, for example, in newspapers has tripled under Kurz. So you can really see that they've recognized this as a very useful tool to uh, reward their friends in the media. Interesting. So, uh, Lily, let's um, come back to the EU. Is there much uh, the EU plans to actually do about this in, in concrete terms? And how much influence can it really have on this issue, and particularly in member states? 
We have gotten to the point where the European Commission openly recognizes that there is a media freedom problem in the EU. Avira Yurova, the Commission Vice President, has called for new tools to address the problem. And Commissioner Thierry Breton has gone as far as floating the idea of a European media freedom Act, which would be in place to provide some new tools. But it remains really unclear what the details of this new proposals would actually look like. And I think overall, a lot of journalists who do feel under pressure uh, would say that they feel like Brussels is quite distant from them on this issue. So, um, for example, oftentimes when Commission President Ursula von der Leyen meets with the heads of governments of countries that have been accused of not respecting media freedom. In the official readout after the meeting, she doesn't mention media freedom issues, which has raised the question of whether at the very highest levels of the commission, there is sufficient political will to actually make this a priority. Yeah, there was a an interesting recent example where Ursula von der Leyen met Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and she gave a tweet which had a big readout of all the things that she had uh, discussed with him and she rather camouflaged or hid uh, the fact that rule of law had even come up. She talked about an ROL report or something like that, which you really have to be a kind of Brussels jargon specialist to know is rule of law. And even if you knew that, of course, there's no specific mention of media freedom. Matt, do you think there is anything more that the EU could and should do about this? Uh, Yes, I do. I I think that they could come up with a set of standards and guidelines and, you know, formulate very clearly what is normal so citizens you know can have some indication of you know whether their country is in line with these standards or not i think the problem that we've seen in a number of countries including hungary is that you know this is a gradual process and you know it happens over time there's this erosion of media freedoms and then you you get to a situation like Hungary is in right now where you have very little critical media because they've been undermined in various ways. That's not the case in Austria, not yet. But, you know, when you have a system like the one in Austria now where the the head of the government has a staff of 60 people on his communications team, you know, and it's a small, small country, you get a sense of how important PR is to them. And, uh, you know, they are using methods, I think, that are are way over the top for a democratic system, let's say, in terms of their interaction with, with the media. And it would be good if the EU would have, you know, some sort of guidelines to show people what is proper and what isn't. Yeah, you raise a couple of good uh, general points there. One is that kind of imbalance between, you know, in a, in a lot of countries, the journalism sector is contracting, the PR sector is expanding. And also, you know, it's it's interesting that you can still have plurality, I think, in a lot of countries. So governments can say, look, we've got critical media, but often those critical media outlets are speaking to a very small audience. They're speaking to perhaps an elite urban audience, whereas the more kind of mainstream mass audience is not getting that kind of plurality of views and coverage. Lily, I think that the commission, tell me if I'm wrong here, the commission in the rule of law report, it does look at media as part of that, but it's kind of buried, right? It 
It does. So, so one of the elements that the commission started looking into in its first ever rule of law report recently has been media freedom, but there hasn't been any indication that since those rule of law reports for each of the 27 countries were published, that there has been any improvement in the more problematic countries as a result. In fact, many experts would say that over the past months, we've seen a deterioration, especially in countries like Slovenia, where the Slovenian press agency has recently started a crowdfunding campaign because they're not getting any state money at the moment. Mm, yeah, this is it. It's complex. And also, I do think those reports, again, they're, they're for the people like us who may dig through them, but they're not in an accessible form where, you know, a country is given a grade or a ranking or a kind of, you know, even like a little traffic light system or something that would make very clear what the European Commission thinks about the standard of media freedom in that country. Well, we could talk about this um, more. Maybe we will in future. In fact, we certainly will in future. But uh, Matt, Lily, for now, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. Now, you may have read that Europe is opening up for the summer. It's actually a bit more complicated than that. So to explain it, we've brought in our mobility reporter, Mary Eccles. Hi, Mary. Hello. So let's just go through what's happened here. So the, the European Commission has made a, a proposal, a recommendation, right, to the EU's member countries. What's that proposal in a nutshell? So essentially, this is the plan to open up non-essential travel to Europe for citizens from third countries, providing they meet one of two criteria. So the first is that they're fully vaccinated. And the second is that they're travelling from a country that falls on the EU's new revamped green list. So the green list has always been in place since essentially the beginning of the pandemic. All that's changed now is that the Commission has announced that it wants to lower the threshold for countries to get onto that green list. So essentially what it means is that it opens up that green list to far more people. OK, and the green list is countries whose citizens are, are allowed in because the coronavirus situation is seen to be under control. Can you just explain what the new threshold is or how it would work? Yeah, so there's a lot of numbers involved in this. So basically, under the previous threshold, countries were able to get onto the green list if they had an average 14-day new case rate of 25 cases per 100,000 inhabitants. Under this new threshold, a country can get onto the green list if they have an average 14-day new case rate of 100 cases per 100,000 citizens. So in theory, people from far more countries will be able to travel to Europe now. And now they're also adding in those who can be accepted under a kind of vaccination track that they have been vaccinated. So I guess the question there is, which vaccines are going to be accepted and how are they going to know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't? Well, that is, yeah, one of the big questions, really. So at the moment, they've said that only EMA-approved vaccines will be accepted, but they could extend that to the WHO emergency list. Obviously, that means at the moment, the Russian Sputnik jab isn't accepted and neither is the Chinese jab. So that's perhaps a little bit controversial, given that some EU governments themselves are using those jabs on their own citizens. In terms of how they'll know uh, whether someone's been vaccinated, again, that's 
perhaps one of the knotty points of this recommendation around the veracity of the vaccination documentation. There's concerns that without a uniform document that these could be easily faked. And in fact, this is something that the travel industry as a whole has been dealing with throughout the pandemic when it comes to uh, faked PCR tests. And now there's a slight concern that it could be widened to faked vaccination certificates as well. Sorry, just and also to backtrack on and do a bit of jargon busting, uh, as lots of people know, but some people won't, the EMA is the European Medicines Agency, so that's the EU regulator that's approving vaccines. So now one of the other contentious issues that's been around all of this, including the whole issue of vaccine passports and all that, is the idea of privilege of some people getting preferential treatment. In other words, the rights of people who haven't been vaccinated for whatever reason being affected. Uh, you know, to their detriment. What's the European Commission saying about that issue? That, in other words, you'd create a kind of two-class system, people who are allowed to move around and travel and come into the EU because they are fortunate enough to have been vaccinated, and then other people who are ruled out because they haven't been. Well, I think it's tried to sidestep that issue by opening up these two tracks. So it's true that if you're vaccinated, that you would be able to enter the EU. But obviously, they have created this new criteria based on the epidemiological situation in a certain country, whereby if that's good enough, you don't actually have to be vaccinated to come. How much of a danger is there of member countries doing their own thing? And some countries are already kind of started to make their own rules and make their own arrangements. And as we know you know, there's a Schengen zone. So in theory, you could come into one country, you know, which has one set of rules for entering. And then you can travel around within the Schengen zone, within much of the EU, including into countries that might have stricter requirements. Is there anything in place here that would prevent that? Um, It hasn't been raised as a particular concern as yet, but obviously, having covered this for the past year, countries are constantly changing their mind, they're constantly introducing new rules. And so the idea that suddenly, you know, now that the EU's introduced this policy that everyone will start doing the same thing, I think is probably a little bit unlikely. One thing I will say, though, is that, you know, having covered it for the past year and having, you know, each week at Politico, we've been doing these country by country travel restrictions. One thing that we have noticed is that countries have typically stuck to the green list and they have tended to keep their borders open to countries that were on the EU's green list. So perhaps that is a bit of a sign of which way things might go. But obviously, as I said, it's it's up to countries to decide whether they want to introduce new measures and throughout the past year they have chosen to do that. But it does sound like the EU's had some success in kind of standardising at least, you know, which countries would be considered, you know, whose citizens would be considered okay to come in and those that wouldn't, right? You haven't had too much of a divergence there. That's one area I would say that, yeah, they have had some success in managing the situation. Mm, Great. Okay, Mary, thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up, if you're wondering what's taking EU leaders, well, most of them anyway, to Portugal in the middle of a pandemic, stick around to meet two people who will also be there and discover what they want to hear from those leaders. A message from SQM. We are a global company that is passionate about human development, supplying diverse products to industries such as health, food, clean energy, and technology. We produce lithium and thermosolar salts to support the global transition away from fossil fuels. Sustainability is a commitment to constant improvement. 
to work in harmony with the natural environment and the communities in Chile where our production is based, as well as playing an active role in their development. Our goal is to contribute to a more sustainable future for the planet and its people. Now, the coronavirus has reminded many Europeans of the importance of a social safety net and of how people who are already socially vulnerable, low-paid, perhaps homeless, maybe in a marginalised community, can be hit hardest by a crisis like this. Some European politicians think the EU should focus much more on tackling such social problems. Others think those issues are best left to national governments, unions, businesses and charities. The Portuguese government, current holder of the presidency of the Council of the EU, is firmly in the first camp, and it's gathered EU leaders in Porto this weekend in an effort to advance social policies agreed at the EU's last social summit back in 2017. We checked in with two people who will be participating in a major conference that leads into the summit. They're leaders of Social Platform, a network of NGOs advocating for social justice. My name's Heather Roy and I am Secretary General of Eurodiaconia, which is a member of Social Platform. And I'm a member of the Management Committee of Social Platform. Yes, and hi, and I'm Piotr Sadowski. So day-to-day job is being the Secretary General of Volunteer Europe, which is also a member of Social Platform. Within the Social Platform structures, I'm the President and here's how they describe their organisation. It is the largest network of other platforms, so member-based organisations that advocates for building a more social Europe. They're campaigning to put vulnerable groups at the forefront of Europe's policy agenda. That includes young people, the homeless, minority communities and those with disabilities, to name just a few. Even before the pandemic, it's clear that social Injustice was very prevalent across uh, the communities of Europe. But I think when the pandemic hit, it really made laid bare those uh, social injustices and those groups of people which were already vulnerable. So when the pandemic hit, these difficult circumstances in which people were finding themselves became even, even harsher for many people. So building a more cohesive, more social Europe for me would be to ensure that every single policy-making decision that is introduced has a person in mind at the end of it. One of the other things Piotr and Heather described was how the pandemic has highlighted some acute social issues. I think one of the things that perhaps the pandemic has shown us is, is often what we regarded as the least has become the most important. So, so cleaners, care workers, hospital staff, social services workers... They're the ones who've had to keep working and work in incredibly difficult situations. So those who have continued to work have faced really pressurised situations. Mm. And then you have those in lower paid work who've been put on short time working or furloughed. So, yes, they're still getting some salary, but they're not getting the full salary that they would have expected to get. And that has an impact on people's ability to cover their daily costs, the normal cost of living. And often when people find themselves in less well-paid work, they are more likely to fall into debt within a couple of months of not having the same level of income as they may have had. 
And whereas member states and the European Commission have introduced schemes such as the SURE scheme for protecting employment, there is always still going to be a gap in people's income. Now, we spoke just days before the Porto Social Summit, and here were their main messages for EU leaders heading into that summit. What we want to ask for, and and actually not even ask for, what we want to demand is a strong political commitment of institutions, of member states who will be present there, to implement the social pillar. Just give us a a quick summary of the social pillar, if you like. Of course, yes. So the social pillar is uh, was proclaimed in November 2017 at the last social summit, which was held under the Swedish EU Council presidency in Gothenburg. And the social pillar has 20 principles which closely relate to the lives of all people across the EU, including those in vulnerable situations that we have been talking about. But then we had to wait for four years to get the social pillar's action plan which will be also debated during the social summit now in Porto. And we had to wait for four years for another social summit. So this is a long time to wait, especially at a time when so many changes have happened and then Europe and European communities and the world has been hit by the pandemic. Do you feel there is buy-in to this agenda all across um, the European Union? You you know, we saw the last one in Gothenburg, Angela Merkel didn't even turn up. We know she was, you know, starting uh, coalition negotiations, but that did, you know, I think she could have taken a day if she'd wanted to go to Gothenburg. She's not coming to Porto. Uh, She's going to take part by video conference. Does that not just send a signal that really EU leaders, particularly the most important ones, they just don't buy into this? I think this is a a really key issue and the European Commission have made it very clear that they see the pillar of social rights as a compass. It's pointing the direction. Now the question is, do all member states want to go in that direction? And whereas no member state will say they don't want a more social Europe, their discussion will always be who has responsibility for achieving that. And it's, it's, I, I think it is disappointing that she's not going to be there this time. I understand the reasons for not going, but it is what it is. But the question of the buy-in from member states, I mean, we, we know already in advance that for some member states, they're saying, yes, this is nice ideas, but leave it to us. And then there are other member states who are saying, we're 100% behind this, let's push forward. And yes, we want more ambition, but I think we have to be realistic too and see that what this is about is implementing what has already been agreed by member states in Gothenburg. It's not asking for more, it's asking for implementation. And the same member states who are saying now, leave it to us, are the ones who signed up to it in Gothenburg. And what the Commission, I think, is trying to say more and more is, how can we cooperate on these questions? Mm. How can we have better reporting, better, if you like, scoring and awareness of what's happening in member states? And how do we use EU funds to their best effect? And I think that's where member states will find agreement. Hmm. Using the use of EU funds is, is the carrot, if you like, that we have in all of this. But from our perspective, you can't have a successful pillar of social rights without financing, policies and legislation. They're the three tools. Now, where there is resistance is in legislation. At the national level or at the EU level or both? I would say for the EU to set legislation, that is the crux if you like. That's the the bite point for the member states is when there is legislation as opposed to policy guidance and the use of EU funds. So I think that's the tension that we see with member states. Mm, mm. Some do not want any legislation. 
Some are quite welcome to have legislation as long as it recognises the national situation. Um, very few are saying, if any, go ahead, give us all the legislation you can. Mm. Peter, if you were to look back at that social pillar and say, here's where we've actually seen some progress, here's where we've seen no progress, and here's the most important thing from that range of 20 measures that needs to be addressed now, you know, what would you say there? The introduction of the action plan is progress. I guess the we're talking about ambition. Probably the sort of lack of ambition is the fact that only three headline targets have been chosen. We also want for those headline targets not to be voluntary targets, but they need to be binding on the member states. Can you remind us what the, the targets are? The key targets here are on employment, um, education and skills, and then poverty reduction. But we're also, we have found that the shortcomings within those targets is that they could be more ambitious. The other thing that I would just like to come back on is in Porto, we will have a, a declaration which will be signed by the, all the member states and we will also be supporting it. But the declaration is not the end point because that's what happens sometimes, you know, with, with documents, with reports, they're absolutely written wonderfully and they're put on the shelf and gather dust. And the same thing cannot happen with the declaration. It cannot be the end point because we cannot allow that. So I think this brings me to the point of how important it is to engage civil society organizations in this process of making sure that what governments have signed up to is actually delivered. Mm. We only have a few minutes left. Is there anything in particular that we haven't covered yet that you think is important to mention? There is much more recognition now of the need to balance between social and economic policies. The challenge is that whereas there is competency under the treaties on economic policies, there is questions about competency on social questions beyond employment mm. at EU level. So whether the EU has the power to act really in these areas? Whether has the EU has the power to act. So there is a desire for balance, but there is not necessarily the legislative treaty basis to achieve that balance. But we, we are seeing in things like the European semester, for example, a greater emphasis on social considerations. And what we would really hope that comes out of Porto as well is that things like the social scoreboard that's been proposed, reporting on the targets becomes embedded as part of the European semester. Right. So in other words, when people are measuring, looking at countries, economic, structural reforms, they're also looking at how they're doing in these social targets. How they're doing in the social areas and not just on the level of employment, mm -hmm. because that's the one that's quite often taken. But looking at other key indicators like the number of children who are living in poverty, the availability and quality of health services and of social services, because that's currently missing. And then also looking at where are countries investing? What do you say to the free marketeers, you know, the, some of these governments and others who would say this is too much social intervention, it costs too much, it adds cost to labour, you know, adding social protections. You know, you can see that from some of the countries who kind of fired a warning shot ahead of the social summit saying, EU, keep away from this stuff. What do you say when you come up against that argument, which I guess you must do from business and others sometimes saying this is all fine in, in principle, but it costs and somebody's going to have to foot the bill for this? So I think that comes back to the question of investment again and, and, and whether you're looking at short term or long term costs, because if you have more people unemployed, it's actually going to be a greater cost to your, your public budget than having people in 
quality, decent work that pays them a living wage by which they're able to live autonomously. So yes, there's a question about the tax wedge when it comes to business, and we recognise that. But let's look at how we can work collaboratively to get decent work for everybody rather than taking entrenched positions. So we need to ensure quality of life for, for people who are outside of the labour market. And that means we need to look at pensions and we need to look at childcare and we need to look at child poverty. So let's not get entrenched at saying it's too expensive. Let's say, what do we need across the life cycle that people can live a dignified, empowered, autonomous life without the need for the large majority of recourse to public funds? So let's not try and narrow it down to only employment. Let's look at what we all need, every one of us, and how that's funded in an adequate way. Okay, we will have to leave it there, unfortunately, but thank you both very much. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app. And also be sure to check out politico.eu in the coming days for our live blog, bringing you the latest on the elections happening across the UK to parliaments in Scotland and Wales and to local councils across England. If you want a flavour of the Scottish election, the second half of last week's episode isn't a bad place to start. It includes a virtual visit to my hometown. You can let us know what you thought of that episode or any other by dropping us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.